Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We are in the book of Jonah again this week. This is our third week in the book of Jonah, and we are making our way through little by little through this wonderful book, and we're taking it just a chapter at a time, getting a broad overview of the book. There's a possibility that we could have taken weeks, months in this one book, but we really wanted to give a sense of the broad overview of the book of Jonah. And so uh, we're taking it just a chapter at a time. And I think this helps us to, to understand the whole a little bit better, to understand each verse in context a little bit better. And so if you, uh, if you haven't been here or, uh, or if you're unfamiliar, if you just need a little bit of a, uh, a refresher, uh, we uh, saw in Jonah 1 how God, uh, uh, sorry, how Jonah had either forgotten or ignored his knowledge of God. He attempted to run from God rather than obeying and honoring him as he should. By the time that he was tossed into the sea and swallowed by the great fish that God had prepared, he was brought back to understanding just how powerful and divine God really is. But God's power and divinity weren't the only things made obvious during these three days that Jonah spent inside the fish. In Jonah 2, we got a glimpse into what Jonah learned. Yes, he, he, as he fell into the sea and was swallowed by the fish, he understood God's power. But as he rode along for three days in the belly of a fish, still living, it, he, he was reminded of God's infinite mercy and kindness. He called out to the Lord and God answered. He brought him out of the pit, he says, and he spared the life of Jonah, who definitely deserved to lose that life. Only God's grace, only God's mercy saved Jonah, and only God's grace saves us. At the end of of Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, he exclaims, salvation belongs to the Lord. He says this with such conviction. But maybe we should start asking some questions. I mean, Jonah was a man of God. Shouldn't he kind of expected God to have saved him? I mean, he was kind of a good person. He messed up that one time, but he had a faithful ministry. Shouldn't he have expected God to to really just save him because he was kind of good? I mean, and surely God would would not be merciful toward those who who hadn't done enough good to outweigh the bad, right? Like, it's some sort of a, a, a karma thing, yeah? Surely the Ninevites didn't deserve to be saved, these wicked people that God had said their evil had come, bu- come up before him in a particular way. Well, in Jonah 3 and 4, we're going to see that God's grace and mercy extend not only to the relatively righteous person who makes a mistake, but to all who hear his voice. This week, as we focus in on Jonah 3, I'm hoping that you're going to see the boldness with which Jonah declares the word of the Lord that you'll see the repentant hearts of the Ninevites and the overwhelming mercy of God in all of it. So this morning, we're going to read Jonah 3 in its entirety. Why don't you guys stand with me as we read God's word? We do this out of reverence for God's word to recognize it as something different than the words that I preach. 
I, I hope that I am faithfully expounding upon the words of God for you, but there is a particular authority and reverence that we should have when God speaks to us directly through his word. And so we stand in reverence for that. This is Jonah 3. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Well, God, we pray that this morning as we consider this passage, that we would, you would help us to, to see the faith that you gave these people who repented. Well, God, I hope, pray that you would help us to see the, the, the deep and true repentance of the Ninevites in this passage. And Lord God, Help us, by the example of Jonah, to preach boldly, Lord, to, to speak your word without apology, and Lord, only to, to lean on the fact that you have said it. I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in this, and that, Lord, as we hear these words and we understand them more deeply, I pray that you would be glorified by our thankfulness. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, Lord, we know that without it, Lord, we could not survive. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace toward us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can be seated. Have you ever done something you didn't want to do? I mean, whether it's taking out the trash during the game, changing a diaper, or having tough conversations, we've all done stuff we didn't want to do, right? Sort of naturally speaking. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, naturally speaking. We saw this in the first chapter. I mean, he, he just straight up ran away from God. He had no natural desire to go. But God had shown him the consequences of running from his responsibilities. The word of God should have been enough to begin with. I mean, you'd think that if you heard an audible voice from God, you'd just go. A lot of people say that. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to need an audible voice in order to change my mind. Well, Jonah heard the audible voice, guys. The word of the Lord came to him, and he still said, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. And so God showed him the consequences of his disobedience. Just like a, a full trash can leads to bad smells and upset spouses, uh, Jonah had come to the realization that hugging the cactus of preaching imminent destruction to an explicitly evil pagan city was far better 
than being judged by God for his disobedience. Jonah's motivation for hugging the cactus, as it were, wasn't the the threat of punishment, however. That wasn't his only motivation. God had shown Jonah not only the threat of punishment, but also the great mercy that he had for people who loved him because God showed Jonah great mercy and pulling him out of the seas into that fish and then having that fish spit him up alive three days later. Jonah deserved certain death, but God had saved him. The mercy of God also motivated Jonah, I believe. And so Jonah's flight from God led him right back to the place he never really wanted to be. He never really wanted to go to Nineveh, but he was there. Remember, this was a a huge city at the time. Not only had great evil come up before God in a particular way, but this place was big. So not only was it particularly evil, it was particularly evil and very, very large to the point where you'd think that would be kind of a scary place to preach. As we saw in in chapter 1 again, uh, their evil had come up before God. That's, I mean, man, to say that, to say that, like, God who knows everything and sees everything, that he was like, no, 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 I see this one in particular. That city had to have been extremely evil. And yet Jonah wound up in this place. He was in a place where he never wanted to go. And so he looked out and said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he walked away. No, that's not what happened. He originally said that, but he he knew that God had shown him what the consequences were for disobedience. He knew that God had shown him great mercy. And so he said, you know what? The reality here is no matter what happens to me in this city, it's far better for me to go here and to preach with boldness the law of God and the, the up, upcoming destruction of this city than, and to be uh, held to, uh, to their standards even than to be held to account by God himself. And so Jonah, when he walked in, he declared the word of the Lord with boldness. The, an older translation says that Jonah cried out. He cried out. And by saying that, this is, uh, John Calvin says this, it says, by saying that he cried, he again proves the courage of his soul, for he did not creep in privately, as men are wont to do, advancing cautiously when dangers were apprehended. He says that he cried. Then this freedom shows that Jonah was divested of all fear, and that he was endued with such boldness of spirit that he raised himself up above all the hindrances of the world, and he proclaimed the word of the Lord with boldness. Jonah wasn't pulling any punches here. He might not have naturally wanted to go and declare this word to the Ninevites, but he did understand the value of it. That's really why we take out the trash, right? We understand the value of it. We don't maybe want to do it naturally. We don't maybe want to change that diaper naturally in the short term, but we understand the long-term benefits of it. So Jonah was confronted with this. He's like, okay, wait, I thought that running was going to be the best thing. No, that is not the case. In fact, it is better for me to preach to these people than to be held to account by God himself. And so he was bold in the proclamation of God's word. Even setting aside the fact that he was in this pagan city that was so evil that God had singled it out, the message alone was pretty uncomfortable, right? 
The, the message was simply, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How would you like to walk into a place, someone's house, someone's city, and say, you know what? In 40 days, this place is going up in smoke. God is going to judge this place. And so it was difficult. And this is the only bit of God's message to Nineveh that we have preserved in Scripture. Maybe Jonah said more. Maybe he expounded upon it a bit. I mean, it, it may be that he walks through the city proclaiming only this phrase. He might have just said this one thing over and over and over again. But it's, it's more likely that he probably said more than these words, right? He said exactly with these words, we believe, absolutely, this is the word of God. And yet, at the same time, maybe he said a few more things. Maybe he, he, he told them more about what was going on. Maybe he helped them to understand that this was for sin, It's, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that I should mention sin there, that he would, he would make it explicit that sin is the reason. I, I really do believe that whether it was explicit in the way that Jonah talked or whether it was implicit in the way that God had ministered to their souls and they, they had sort of figured out, oh, oh, wait, you're, like, God's going to come in destruction because we are pretty wicked and we know it. So either way, they knew Somehow, we find out later in the, in the scripture here, we, they knew that, he, that God was coming for punishment for sins. A, uh, a TV show I've been watching recently spends a lot of time comparing and contrasting paganism and medieval Roman Catholicism in its narrative. Um, at, at one point in the narrative, one of the, one of the characters is baptized into the Catholic Church and afterward, another character comes to that person and says, well, now Jesus Christ has died for your sins. To which the first character responds, what sins? What sins? Honestly, I don't know whether the writers of this show uh, intended this to be a, com a commentary of some sort on modern Christianity, but it absolutely fits. So often we talk about salvation in Christ without ever talking about sin or punishment. For some people, this is effective because they feel guilty for past sins. They know that what they've done is wrong for some people. They know that they, they, they sort of make this logical connection that, that God is going to hold them to account, right? Sort of happens naturally for some, but honestly, I don't think most people really make this connection and they don't really understand sin and punishment. The idea of sin requires an understanding uh, that right and wrong is determined not by people, but by the one source of absolute truth. The idea of just punishment for sin requires a holy God who has every right to, to punish sin however he sees fit. But we live in a society where laws have been disconnected from the source of truth. Do you, I mean, do you guys see this? I, I see this all the time. Like, morality is determined by people who hold sway over the masses. Don't get it in your heads that morality is somehow determined by the masses. It's not. It's determined by a few people who hold sway over the masses, who make convincing arguments, and so the masses go along. The reality is that morality is becoming more and more disconnected from any sense of an absolute God or an absolute truth or an absolute morality. For many people, even Christians today, if you try to address homosexuality, drunkenness, gluttony, or gossip with them, they're likely to respond with, what sins? 
And from my perspective, unless God intervenes in some sort of huge way, it's only going to get worse in the future. The reason that, that we've become so disconnected is that we've reacted against these hellfire and brimstone preachers of the past. And it's led many churches and many preachers and many Christians to preach heaven without hell and mercy without wrath. But those hellfire and brimstone preachers of the past were far more faithful in gospel ministry than the prosperity gospel or hyper grace preachers of today. Jonathan Edwards is, was a pastor and theologian in the 1700s who has been widely criticized as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. His most famous work is a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can't get, get much more uh, hellfire and brimstone than that, can you? But this man who was accused of heavy-handedness when it regards hell was certainly a more faithful gospel preacher than many Christians today. Preaching cheap grace without the real and imminent threat of judgment leads to either false assurance of salvation or to the better question, what good is grace if I'm not a sinner? That's what it leads to. Essentially, what sins? While Jonah may not be a perfect hero in our story, his faithful declaration of the law of God, the consequences of sin, led people to repentance. Just as Peter preached the first Christian sermon in Acts 2, he says, this Jesus who you crucified, he's just talking about who Jesus is. He doesn't actually lead them even into there's hope for you. He just says, you crucified the Son of God. But the law rightly preached, whether it's from Jonah or from Peter or from one of us talking to one of our friends at work, I'm not talking about just here in the pulpit. If it's one of us, we rightly declare the law of God, it's going to lead exactly to what they responded to Peter with in Acts 2.37. Brothers, what shall we do? There's a moment of self-preservation that kicks in when you go, man, if I can't be saved by doing good stuff, then how in the world should I be saved? What do I do now? Of course, I'm not saying that you should preach the law to the neglect of the gospel. By no means. In fact, John Calvin concludes that Jonah must have actually preached faith and repentance as well, or else God had to have placed it in the hearts of those people to repent and believe. One of the two. But if your understanding of sin in light of the law of God doesn't lead you and others to ask, well then, what should I do? You've got to question whether you're taking God's wrath seriously. You can't have the good news of grace without the bad news of judgment first. If we really understood the wrath of God and the mercy of God as we ought, if we really put our faith into action, I think we'd be more courageous in our proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, there are risks. I'm not saying there aren't. But they are worth the cost if just one soul comes to Christ. should be willing to take that risk and preach boldly like Jonah did. He was confident that it was far better to be judged by men than to be judged by God. If we really had that understanding of wrath and mercy, 
we would be more bold in our proclamation. And I, I need to hear that this week as much as anybody else. And Jonah didn't proclaim this word of judgment to the people of Nineveh without risk. I mean, in fact, it probably would have been more naturally for, natural for these people to just reject Jonah's teaching or simply kill him. I mean, it was already a wicked city. What's one more? But that's not what happened. While rejection of Jonah's message might have been the natural response, God did something supernatural. Jonah 3, 5 through 9 says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The first seven words of this passage are of great importance. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I asked Ashley if this sounded familiar the other day, and I think it should be familiar to us if it's not already. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation by faith. Now, I admit that this text isn't clear whether the whole nation of Nineveh experienced saving faith as Jonah preached. But I am convinced in the midst of this national faith and repentance that at least some had saving faith. In Matthew 12, Jesus says about his generation in comparison to these people in, in Nineveh, it says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In my mind, this, this makes it clear that at least some of the Ninevites were saved by grace through faith, not only in that moment from imminent destruction, but from eternal punishment as well. But even temporary faith and repentance from this evil city was a miracle wrought by God for his good purposes. In, in the Ninevites, we see that faith that is believing God led to repentance. And that's the pattern that we need to zoom in on here today. God takes wicked sinners like us. Yeah, like all of us, every single one of us, and exchanges our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. And he opens our eyes to see the depth of our sin and the heights of his grace. And the faith that results from this inward transformation that God does on his own, all by his grace, works itself out in faith and repentance. First, yes, we believe God, and in believing him, we turn toward Christ and away from sin. The, uh, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 15, paragraph 3, if you really want to look it up, says this, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person 
being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does by faith in Christ humble himself with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing and sorry, unto all well-pleasing in all things. To put it in modern terms, I know this is some old English, it's a difficult sentence structure. Repentance isn't just about acknowledging your sin. Repentance is about a godly sorrow for your sin. It's about detesting your sin and understanding that you are not as good as you should be. Repentance means praying that God would forgive you and that he would give you the strength to do what is right, to resist sin, and to please him in all things. Honestly, this doesn't really sound like the version of repentance that we often practice in our everyday lives. I mean, admitting that you're struggling with something is great, but if it doesn't come with remorse, prayer, and grace-driven effort to turn away from it, then perhaps your admission of struggle is more like therapy than confession and repentance. The Ninevites took their sins seriously. They didn't just acknowledge their sin. They didn't just go, yeah, 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 I did that thing. I don't feel good about it, but I don't feel super bad about it either. That's not what they said. No, they didn't just acknowledge their sin. They turned from it. In this passage, we see the fruits of repentant hearts. They put on sackcloth, they sat in ashes, they fasted, and they prayed. Sackcloth and ashes uh, coupled with fasting are typical ways to mourn in the ancient Near East. It's how people mourned death and loss, how they mourned sin. These people were experiencing a true and godly grief for their sins, and it wasn't just a show. It was real. It was palpable. They understood that they were deserving of judgment. Like Jonah, as he told the sailors to throw him overboard, they knew that there was no escaping from what was coming. These sailors, as they threw him overboard, were thinking, okay, this is, this is the last ditch effort. And, just the, and the same thing with Jonah. He was flying through the air. He had to have been thinking, this is all of grace if I survive this. It is only God's mercy if I get out of this somehow. Likewise, these people in Nineveh understood that there was only one way out. And it was by the very mercy of God. So they understood, though, that their sins, their sins were something not to be relished, not something to held on to, not something to wear like a badge of honor, but something to be turned from. And so whether you call yourself a Christian today or not, your situation is no different from the Ninevites. The judgment of God is coming, and his wrath is perfect. And I mean that to scare you. No matter who you are or what you've done, you need to repent of your sins. From murder to sexual immorality or lying or gossip, take your pick. Any of these sins, put them aside, repent from them. God is calling you to repent and believe in the gospel, just as he did in the first century in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Repentance and faith come hand in hand. Saving faith produces repentance, period. It is the fruit. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Hands that are full of sin cannot hold on to Christ in faith. Instead, they take hold of him 
and those hands are emptied. That which has prevented us from trusting him fails or falls inevitably to the ground. The old way of life cannot be retained in hands that are taking hold of the Savior. We need, as Christians, as people, a serious, heartfelt, gut-wrenching repentance. Not just the passing mention of sin with your accountability partner or your community group. We do this all the time. You go, yeah, 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 I, like I sinned this way. And then nothing. What? Like, are you broken over that? Do you feel conviction over it? Or are you just saying it out loud because you feel like that's what you're supposed to do? We need repentance in our lives. We need the faith that we have in God and the understanding that we have of his wrath to push us into repentance. And so mourning, fasting, and prayer are appropriate when you recognize your own sins. You should absolutely never do these things just by a means of meriting God's love or favor. But you should definitely do them if, if you feel that they are an appropriate expression of repentance. If you feel sad... If you feel like crying about your sinfulness, maybe it's time to go, okay, I need to spend a week fasting and praying because that is the, the right way for me to, to express my, my godly repentance, the godly grief that I feel for my sins. This is probably a, a message, again, along with the boldness that I needed to hear this week. At times I do the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. I can't possibly enumerate all of the things that I've done wrong this week. I understand that, that every single thing that I do even feels like it's tainted with sin in some small way. But maybe sometimes I, I need to take a moment and go, okay, but there are some things that I know particularly that I've done. And maybe I need to mourn those things a little bit more. Maybe I need to understand that a little bit better. Maybe I need to know that God's wrath is a real thing. But mourning doesn't last forever, not for the Christian. See, we may be grieved by past sins, certainly. But when you have repentance, there is assurance that comes from that in Christ because he's already paid for it. So yes, we should feel remorse and grief and sadness over our sins. We should repent in sackcloth and ashes if necessary. But there is assurance in Christ as you submit to him, as you believe in him. We read it in our call to worship this morning. Psalm 35 says, for, this, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There is joy in salvation. Once there is repentance in your heart, and you've set these things aside, and you have turned away, and you have, you have laid them at the foot of the cross, there is joy in salvation. We need to see, though, that there is salvation first. Jonah 3.10 says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I'll be honest with you, when I first thought about this passage, I wanted to preach all the theological depth of that one particular verse. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, there's like a, a sermon at least in that one verse that I just read, or maybe a couple of lectures if we wanted to get real deep and, and a little less uh, practical. But 
The reality is that the, the theological depth of this particular verse isn't the main point of the whole passage. It's not. Yeah, there's wonderful things here about how God relents from punishment and how does that work with an unchanging God. There's wonderful questions to ask and you should ask those questions and you should hit me or Pastor Brandon up with those questions because we'd love to talk about them. But the point of the passage isn't all of these wonderful theological truths that are so deep and esoteric and, and special knowledge kind of stuff, right? Like, it's not about that. It's about the love and mercy of God. That is a wonderful thing that we cannot miss in this passage. God is merciful. Just as, as Jonah was saved from the storm, the Ninevites were spared from God's judgment for their sins. Neither Jonah nor the Ninevites deserved to be saved. They both deserve to be punished. The same. They're both sinful sets of people or, or person. But God is merciful, and so he relented. In his unfathomable mercy, God passed over Nineveh. Likewise, for all those who have faith in Christ, God has promised to pass over you when he comes in judgment. Your sins are paid for in Christ. Think about, if you, if you don't really feel the, the joy and happiness that that brings, I, I just want you to imagine yourself in Nineveh. Think of, of yourself as one of the people living there. You've, you've been called to repentance. You recognize that, oh man, I've done terrible things, but destruction is coming and all I have hope in is that God might be merciful. Imagine that you're there. And then imagine that day 40 ticked by and nothing happened. The skeptical among us is going to go, well, then obviously God didn't actually mean that he was going to do it. No, the right response to this is dancing in the streets. I don't know how these people responded. We didn't get to that point. But, man, the right response was praising God with everything in their being. He had promised destruction. He said, in 40 days, it's going to all go away. There's no escaping this. But God relented. I hope you're thinking that my reaction to this would be incredibly thankful. That my life continues because God was merciful, not because I was good enough but because God showed mercy. I mean, do you feel that way about your salvation? I mean, that's what God has done for you in Christ. Except he didn't just pass over you for a moment and then eventually they, they ended up dying, yeah, by natural causes. No, he didn't do that for you. He, he saved your eternal soul from eternal punishment. It's far better, far more worthy of praise, and far more worthy of worship than anything he did for Nineveh in that day. Maybe you wonder why we show up to church every Sunday and sing songs and hear about God and, and what he's done and partake of the Lord's Supper and, and pray together. Maybe you're, you're like, oh, I don't, I mean, I feel like maybe it's, the, it's what good Christians are supposed to do, right? They show up on Sunday. Um, maybe, maybe you kind of go, like, why, why do we do this? Well, we don't show up to merit God's favor. I'll tell you that. He's already given it. We, we don't show up to socialize, though we certainly enjoy the fellowship. 
We don't show up to, to get 10 tips on how to solve all of our lives' problems, though we may certainly receive wise counsel. We show up on the Lord's day every single week because God has poured out his grace and his mercy upon sinners, forgiving us of our sins, restoring us to fellowship with him, and giving us eternal life. We do it to worship. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about the God who saves degenerate sinners by the blood of the cross. It's about thankfulness and worship to him. And so even in the most terrible of times, the Christian can rejoice because God is merciful. That mercy is really a central fixture in this book. I mean, you'd think that a, a book called Jonah would be about Jonah, but it's really not. It's not about the sailors on the ship not about the big fish, but that's kind of cool. It's not about the Ninevites or about the king who, who led them to fast and pray. No, none of this is about them. It's about a merciful God. He's the central character to the story. He's the point. It's not about all of them. Yeah, I mean, Jonah preached boldly, and that's a wonderful example for us. We shouldn't let that go by the wayside. And yes, the, the Ninevites repented, and yes, we can learn from that, and we should understand that, that we should be led to that kind of repentance. But really, God's mercy is the foundation of all of it. I mean, think about it. In God's mercy, he sent Jonah to Nineveh. He didn't have to give them a warning. He could have just nuked them from orbit. Gone. He had mercy on the sailors who didn't perish in the storm. They were pagans. They were calling out to their gods. He could have judged them right there and, and then for that, but he didn't. He showed mercy. He had mercy on Jonah who had run from him. God showed mercy to the Ninevites who believed God and turned from their evil ways. I mean, our only hope is exactly the same hope that the Ninevites expressed with, when they were faced with, with just this certain judgment. It's this. Who knows? God may, return and, uh, may turn and relent from, uh, and return his faith from anger so that we may not perish. That's, that's the, the hope. They go, maybe God will relent. Maybe God will turn his face away. Thing is, we don't have to say maybe. We have more full revelation than these people did here. We don't have to say maybe. We do know. When they say who knows, you can say, I do. I know. We know that God in his infinite mercy sent his only son to die on the cross for sins. And he calls out, repent and believe the gospel. That famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards I mentioned earlier. He says this. Even now, you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying out with a loud voice to poor sinners. Jonathan Edwards wasn't a man who didn't know how to preach the gospel. He preached Christ, him crucified. He preached the mercy of God. 
If you're not in Christ, if, if you don't believe, then you need to know that God's wrath is coming. There, there isn't time to get your life straight or to be good enough that he might pass over you. That's not how this works. You aren't guaranteed the next, next second, let alone the next day. There is no time for you to repent or to, for you to turn away and, and to be as good as you should be, but there is time for you to repent. There's absolutely time to turn to Christ, and it's right now. Even if you're in Christ, you need to hear this. Maybe there's sin in your life that you need to let go of. It's time to repent. It's time to lay it at the foot of the cross. It's time to fight that. If you're in Christ, then you know all of this. I, at least I hope you do. Because this mercy should be the foundation for your life. You've been forgiven. You will be passed over. That's a good thing. The wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus for your sake. So repent. Yes, even daily, repent of your sins because you know God is merciful. And then in joy and confidence, you can declare both the law and the gospel boldly. You can say, yes, I have received this. I know it to be true. You can declare the law and the gospel boldly because God is merciful. You know it by experience. This is my prayer for us today, that God in his mercy and his grace would strengthen our faith Lead us to repentance. Grant us boldness to proclaim the good news, to allow us to experience the joy of salvation. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.